I want to start out by telling you something I saw online. And this is, I saw this picture, and um, it was a picture of a bulletin board a teacher had put up in the hallway. And it was a picture uh, for, it was a bulletin board for Halloween. And uh, there were different pictures of students, and they had all said what they were most scared of. So uh, one of the students said, I'm most scared of sharks. Another said, I'm most scared of spiders. Another, I'm most scared of ghosts. And the last child said this, I'm most scared of the unstoppable marching of time that is slowly guiding us toward an inevitable death. Deep words, kind of scary, kind of depressing for a five-year-old to say. But it really got me thinking. Do we live like this? Do we live like time is marching forward inevitably to end in our terrible deaths? Or do we have a better hope? Do we have a higher hope than that? We do, do we not? And that hope is in who? In Christ. But do we live that way? Do we live like we have that hope and that time is not marching on inevitably to end in our death? The Bible is filled with time prophecies and the last time prophecy in the Bible ended in 1844. That was more than 170 years ago. And Jesus hasn't come back yet. So there's a problem, right? We are living like time is marching on, but we have this hope, but we're not taking advantage of this hope. Why has Jesus not come back yet? Christ's Object Lessons, page 145, says, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of the Savior shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're all to profess this name, bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world will be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest will be ripened, and Christ would come. So Christ is waiting for his character to be perfectly reproduced in his church. And I don't know about you, but I don't think Christ has come back yet. So that has not happened yet. So how do we do that? How do we perfectly reproduce Christ's character in his church? I'm here to tell you that it's going to take a change in each and every one of us as God's people, being prepared to take on that character. And this morning we're going to talk about what that looks like. Let's have a word of prayer. Dearly Father, I thank you so much for this Sabbath. I thank you uh, for all the amazing blessings that you bring upon us. Help us to learn something new about you and your character today in your holy name. Amen. All right, so we're going to go over three main things. So if Christ is asking us to perfectly reproduce his character, is he allowed to make that statement towards us? Is he allowed to ask perfect character from us? And so to understand that, we have to take a look at Christ's humanity. Was he fully human? Does he truly understand what we're going through? Or did he take on part of humanity? And, uh, and if he did, does that make sense? Secondly, we're going to go over how he overcame that nature and preserved his sinless, sinlessness while he was on this earth. And thirdly, we're going to go over how we are to overcome this nature. So first, how did Christ do this? How did Christ come to this earth? What humanity did he take on? And how did he live a sinless life? 
So there are many theories about this. Many people believe that Christ took on the humanity of Adam before he fell in the garden. And that's what he came to earth with. That's what he struggled with, with the, with the character and the nature that Adam was made with before the fall. Others believe that Jesus came and he had fallen character, the character of Adam after the fall. And some even believe that Jesus was perfectly holy when he was born and he never sinned because he was holy because he could not sin. So we're going to see what it really is. Review and Herald, July 28, 1874. Christ was not in a favorable position in the desolate wilderness to endure the temptations of Satan as was Adam when he was tempted in Eden. The Son of God humbled himself and took man's nature after the race had wandered 4,000 years from Eden and from their original state of purity and uprightness. Sin had been making its terrible marks upon the race for ages and physical, mental, and moral degeneracy prevailed throughout the human family. When Adam was assailed by the tempter in Eden, he was without the taint of sin. He stood in the strength of his perfection before God. All the organs and faculties of his being were equally developed and harmoniously balanced. Christ, in the wilderness of temptation, stood in Adam's place to bear the test he failed to endure. When Christ overcame in the sinner's behalf 4,000 years after Adam turned his back upon the light of his home, separated from the presence of God, the human family had been departing every successful generation farther from the original purity, wisdom, and knowledge which Adam possessed in Eden. Christ bore the sins and infirmities of the race as they existed when he came to the earth to help them. In behalf of the race, with the weakness of fallen man upon him, he was to stand the temptations of Satan upon all points wherewith man would be assailed. Now this is an amazing truth. The fact that Christ took on sinful humanity is the most amazing thing in the world because that means that Christ can ask us to do this. He can ask us to live this perfect life while we're here on this earth. Because if I am Christ and I say, I put you in a room and you have, uh, you have only two doors to escape from and I tell you to get to freedom. So you walk up to one of the doors and uh, you look through this door. This door is big. You look outside and the path is large and there's nothing obscuring the way and you see freedom at the end. You're going to look at Christ and say, hey, this, I mean, I'm going to take this one. I don't even need to look at the other door. This door looks great. I can see freedom right here. And Christ says that door leads to destruction. So you say, okay. So you go to the other door, and this door is tiny. You can barely fit through this door. There's thorns growing around the edges of the door. You look, and you can barely see out of it. There's so much brush, and there's a cliff on one side and a mountain on the other side. And it's very narrow. And you look at Christ and you say, why would I take this path? Why would I go this way? And he says, and what if he was to say, I don't know, I've never been down it. But uh, that one leads to destruction, and this one leads to freedom. But we see that Christ took on our nature. He took on what we have to deal with every single day. So he can look down that path that is so scary to us, and he can say, I've done that path. I've gone that path, and I've suffered more than you'll ever have to suffer on this earth. So I can tell you that that is the way. Just trust me. So Christ is able to ask of us, righteousness. And he did take on full humanity. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is, 
the devil. Now, another point I want to uh, bring out is that just because Christ was born with this sinful nature does not mean that Christ sinned. Because if that's true, then he could not have been the Lamb of God. Many churches believe that as soon as you're born, because you have a sinful nature, you have already sinned. And that's why we say things like, I'm a sinner, or, oh, I'm just always sinning. And so we need constant forgiveness and that picture of the way that our salvation works. Um, If you look at the Catholic Church, um, they require infant baptism, and they also require the, um, the holiness of Mary, her being perfect, in order for Christ to have been perfect. Because they believe that when you're born with a sinful nature, that you're already sinning. And Christ could not have been sinning or else he could not have been the Lamb of God. So you have to have Holy Mary. And that's why they do infant baptisms, because they don't want children to die and not go to heaven if they were to die. But we see here that it cannot work that way. It cannot work that way if Christ took on our full human nature to guide us upon the way if he was to be sinning as soon as he was born. And so I'm here to tell you that when you are born, you don't automatically take on the sins of your parents. I don't know. I grew up with this idea. People told me, before you can make decisions, your parents' salvation is what makes your salvation. If you were to die before you can make decisions for yourself, your salvation would be based upon what your parents do. I want to read something from you from Selected Messages, page 2. Sorry, book 2, page 260. As the little infants come forth immortal from their dusty beds they immediately wing their way to their mother's arms. They meet again never more to part, but many of the little ones have no mother there. We listen in vain for the rupturous song of triumph from the mother. The angel receives the motherless infants and conducts them to the tree of life. So we see there will be infants in heaven with no mothers. And so this picture works, this picture of Christ taking on our full and complete humanity, understanding the path that he's asking us to walk on, works. It works and it makes sense. So now we ask this big question. All right, if Christ did this, if he took on our full nature, how did he overcome it? Because I try to do that every day and I fail. How did Christ do this? That's what we're going to look at next. So Christ, when he was on this earth, did he constantly point to himself? Did he say, I am doing this. I, Christ, am able to do this, to overcome this, to overcome this temptation. No, he always pointed to his father. He always pointed to something greater than himself. Gospel Workers, page 92, says, The warfare against self is the greatest battle that was ever fought. The yielding of self, surrendering all to the will of God, and being clothed with humanity, possessing the love that is pure, peaceable, and easy to be entreated, full of gentleness and good fruits, is not an easy attainment. The soul must submit to God before it can be renewed in knowledge and true holiness. The holy life and character of Christ is a faithful example. His confidence in his heavenly Father was unlimited. His obedience and submission were unreserved and perfect. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to others. He came not to do his own will, but the will of him that sent him. In all things he submitted himself to him that judges righteously. From the lips of the Savior of the world were heard the words, and I want you to listen to this, I can of mine own self do nothing. So the very first step that Christ took to overcome this nature was to completely and fully die to himself. I don't know why, but when I first heard that, I just thought, oh, but it's Jesus. He's got this. He came to this earth 
And he's got this, but even himself, he said, I cannot do this on my own. It is impossible. He did nothing of himself. He had so much power to use, but he never used it because he wanted to point to something greater to give us the example of what we are to do. So in the same way that Christ sacrificed himself daily to take on the spirit of his Father, we are called to sacrifice ourselves daily and take on the spirit of Christ, Christ in us. Now, how, how does that happen? How do, how do we die to self? I want to look at the story of Lazarus to kind of uh, depict this. Um, so you guys know the story of Lazarus. Lazarus became sick, and uh, many people called to Jesus to come uh, and to heal Lazarus. Jesus did not come. So after Lazarus had died, Jesus comes, and people are very angry with Jesus. Why did you do this, Jesus? Why did you not come earlier and let Lazarus die? And Jesus says this to Martha when, he, when she asked this of him. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me, he shall never die. Do you believe this? Now this is so amazing here. So let's look at this very closely. So he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. So he who believes in me, so if you believe in me, though he may die, so you're going to die. If you believe in me, you're going to die. And whoever lives, oh, and he shall live. So he's saying, if you believe in me, you will die, and I will make you live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And that got very confusing to me. He's saying, you'll never die, and then he's saying before that you will die. And I believe that here he's talking about that death to self. If you die to self, I promise that I will give you life eternal. You don't have to worry about death anymore. Romans 8, 1 through 5 says, There is righteousness now, no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not in the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. The righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they are after the flesh, do in the things of the flesh, but they are after the Spirit, do the things of the Spirit. So this is what I'm trying to say here. Lazarus is a very literal depiction of what God is asking each and every one of us to do. Lazarus was dying, and people were asking Jesus to come and heal him, to come and save him, and Jesus did not come because he wanted to prove a point here. And so when Christ came and resurrected Lazarus, it was exactly as he wants for each and every one of us. He wants each and every one of us to die to ourselves and be resurrected in him. Because if we live with our own spirit, if we live with our own natural sinful flesh, we will always do evil. Even if we do good within ourselves, even that good is evil. But when we die to ourselves and Christ puts his spirit in us, now it's no longer us doing those things. It's no longer us having to do works. Now it is Christ in us doing them. And that's how we gain salvation. And that's so simple, but it's so hard to live out in our daily lives, right? We kneel down and we say, Lord, take 
my life. You guys thought about what that means? If you said, I'm going to take this lamb and I'm going to take its life, that means you're going to kill it. And so Christ comes to us, we, we pray that prayer, and then we go on our day, and Christ comes, he knocks on our door, and he starts killing us. And we say, whoa, Lord, what are you doing? I didn't ask you to kill me, I asked you to take my life. Why are you doing this? Why are you putting me through all this? I'm not ready for this. I don't want you to kill me. I'm not ready to give up all that. I just want to give you my life. And Jesus says, that's what it takes. That's what it took for me to give you salvation. You need to die to this self and live fully and completely in me. And this is hard, guys. I know it is hard, and it's a struggle because there is so much in us holding on dearly to our lives. We have so many things in our daily lives that define us, things that we think make us. And so when we feel like we have to get rid of those things, it hurts. And we protest against that. I don't want to give this up. This makes me who I am. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you a new person, a new creation in me. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What I read in Romans was saying that if we die to that flesh and live in that spirit, there's no condemnation under the law anymore. Now, does that mean the law is done away with? No. We know that, right? But when we die to that self and live in that spirit, what the law could not do in our flesh, because it was in our flesh, now the law of the spirit which is upheld because we know Christ kept the law, is upheld in us. And then we can't boast for keeping that law anymore because we realize, as a truly converted Christian, that it's not me doing these things anymore. It is Christ in me. So how do we do this? How do, how do, we, how do we practically do this every single day? How do we wake up and die to self every single day? I'd like to go to the sanctuary and uh, just look at a few articles of furniture in there that I think help us uh, kind of get through the daily life. The first I'd like to look at is the table of showbread, which is symbolic of studying God's word. The second is the altar of incense, which is symbolic of prayer. And the third is a seven-branch candlestick, which is symbolic of our witnessing. Now, I don't want you to make this a checklist in your life. I don't want you to go every single day and say, okay, I've studied the Bible, I've prayed today, I've witnessed today. But I ask you to take this challenge. Walk through the sanctuary. Because as you, as you study your Bible, I promise you that you're going to find things in there that you're going to want to communicate with God about. You're going to find things in your studies that you realize have great importance to your life, and you're going to want to talk to God about that. So you fulfill two of those things now. You study God's word, and now you're communicating to God about what he's sharing with you. And I promise you, when you do those two things together... You will have no choice but to share these things with others because the things that you will learn in God's word are so amazing you will not be able to hold it in. And so that's something very practical we can try to keep in our lives. Bible study, prayer, and witnessing. And I found for myself, when I'm doing these things, when I have these things in my life, nothing can bring me down. Because I feel so fulfilled in this. And as we look at the sanctuary, and as we were looking at the fact that we are to perfectly reproduce Christ's character on this earth, where is he? He's in the most holy place. And his character is there in his law. 
And so as we're walking through these things, we'll have no choice but to arrive there with Christ in the most holy place, dwelling with him. So that's a very practical thing that we can do. But this is still scary. It's scary to take on the spirit of Christ. But he promises to work with us. Desire of Ages, page 302, says, If the eye is kept fixed on Christ, the work of the spirit ceases not until the soul is conformed to his image. Steps to Christ, page 58, says, Spirit is silent and imperceptible. Its effects are manifest. If the heart has been renewed by the Spirit of God, the life will bear witness to the fact. While we cannot do anything to change our hearts or to bring ourselves into harmony with God, while we must not trust all to ourselves or our own good works, our lives will reveal whether the grace of God is dwelling within us. A change will be seen in the character, the habits, the pursuits. The contrast will be clear and decided between what they have been and what they are. The character is revealed not by occasional good deeds and occasional misdeeds, but by the tendency of the habitual works and acts. So there it is. He promises to work with us. He promises to bear with us daily so that we can overcome this nature and can live in Christ. This is Christ in us. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm so tired of this earth. I'm so tired of time marching on toward my inevitable death. I'd much rather live with the hope, knowing that Christ can do something amazing in us and in our church, and so that he can finally come back and take us home. We get so caught up in, I think what Mark Howard has been speaking about is this uh, uh, legalistic or liberal speak. But we can put an end to that with this message, this message of righteousness by faith. Because to the ultra-conservative, he is keeping the law of God, but he does not understand how to share that with others and how to care for others around him. And to the liberal, they are understanding how to share with others and how to do things for others and how to do all the good things, but they refuse to stand on the law of God. And what this message is calling is both sides. If we are living in Christ, we have no choice but to helping those around us and to keep his law at the same time. This unites those things. And our church is going to need to be united for Christ to come back. And I don't know about you, but I do not want the rocks to have to cry out in order for Christ to come back. I want this church to be able to finally get through this. It's been over 170 years, and I'm tired of waiting. Let's finally unite in this truth. And um, that's it. Let's have a word of prayer. Dearly Father, I thank you so much for the promise that you are to come back. Lord, give us the strength because we cannot do it on our own to fall completely under the submission of you and your character. We love you, Lord, with all our heart and your holy name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.